0: And even the strangers that you cross paths with. Behind every face is a drama waiting to unfold. Now, granted, behind some of those faces, there's maybe a little more drama than other faces at times, some maybe a little more comedy than in other faces, but behind every face is a drama waiting to unfold. It's a very simple principle, really, uh, that applies to every single life that every life tells a story. Every single life in this room tells a story. It doesn't matter whether you're on this platform, front row, back row, somewhere in between. Every single life tells a story. It tells a story of the ups and the downs. It tells a story of the wins and the losses, the victories, the challenges, the easy times, the blessings. Every single life tells a story, including yours and including mine. But the thing that we often miss, however, is that for every single life, every life included in this room is also part of a much bigger story. Sometimes we forget that, right? We get so busy in our lives and we get so, uh, so uh, uh, captured by the daily routine. We go to work, we go to school, we you know, have events, we have practices, we have things that we're working on, tasks to do, hobbies to engage in, right? That, that we miss the fact often that our lives, your life, my life, every one of us, that our lives are part of a much bigger story that is being played out. And the Bible captures for us in 66 little books, uh, captured in one big book called the Bible, it helps us to understand what that big story is. And and when I look at the story of the Bible, I've I've seen it kind of uh, narrowed down to four different acts, and to me that helps kind of to keep the big story in mind. The very first act of Scripture, if you want to look at the Bible as one grand story, the first act was the act of creation. And at at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 captures that for us, that at creation, God put into existence everything that we see and that he even created people. And and those people, Adam and Eve, would ultimately grow and prosper and multiply to the point to where you're here and I'm here. And we can all look back to the fact that we're here as an act of God's creation. We're here because of a creator. Now, look at what the Bible says. Psalm chapter 139. I love this passage of Scripture. Uh, There's two different verses sort of put together here, verse 13 and verse 16. But the psalmist is writing and and he's speaking of God, he's speaking to God. He says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. And so, when you look at your life, man, you are a grand creation of God. You may only see your flaws, you may only see your weaknesses, you may only see those moments where if you could hit the reset button, you'd go back and do it all over again. You may only see the things that are imperfections, so to speak. But what God sees is a grand creation that He brought into existence, that act one of the grand story is the story of creation. That part is a part of your story, creation. Act two in the grand story can be summarized in one word, fall. In the second act, just the third chapter of the Bible, the Bible helps us to understand that even though God created us to walk with him and to enjoy him and to fellowship with him and to walk with him daily, that in just the third chapter of the Bible, we see the enemy make his way into this grand story. And In the midst of the story, not only does the enemy come, but he brings temptation along with him. And The very first two people that God created, Adam and Eve, fall prey to the enemy's plan B. And when God said, here's my, you are my creation, here's fellowship, walk with me, enjoy me, uh, 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 live out my purpose for your life, the enemy came along, and he brought plan B, and he said, no, God's plan is not, not necessarily the best. Here's an alternate plan, and he rolled out this alternate plan, and he said, if you'll just do it my way, then you'll have what you, your heart longs for deeply. And Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that, that uh, the enemy had, had, uh, had kind of used as As plan B. And when they sinned and rebelled against God, that fellowship with God that they'd had with Him walking in the garden was broken. And what the Bible tells us is that ever since then, we've all been creating sin in our own lives, haven't we? It's it's, it's as though it comes as a second nature. And, And when we sin, the Bible says that it breaks our fellowship with God, that every one of us in this room have that one common aspect, that we've all sinned, Romans 3.23. And Romans 6 tells us that the payday, the wages of that sin is death, spiritual separation from God. Act two, fall, is a part of your story. In the midst of that darkness, however, we find that God introduces act three. Act three can be summarized in one word, the word rescue. Rescue and the prophets kind of in a very dark period of, of uh, biblical history, the prophets looked ahead to this one who would come. He'd be called the Messiah. He would be God in flesh. And, and what the prophets looked for, the gospels unfold. And we look back to the wonderful day when God himself came as our rescue in the person of Jesus. And when he was born there in the city of Bethlehem, this was the moment, man, that the whole world had waited for. This was the moment when God stepped into the story, literally with flesh and blood, with skin on, and he stepped into the story, and he did it to ultimately bring everybody who had fallen, which is all of us, right? He did it so that he could provide rescue, and Jesus was our life ring, right? He was the safety line. He was what God offered. uh, God himself in the flesh came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and he rose again, and he did all of that to provide for salvation and forgiveness, and when Colin was baptized, this morning, it's a reminder that you have a choice, right? You have the option of choosing whether you want to follow Jesus as Savior or whether you will not. And Jesus came as our rescue. And and the Bible tells us that it was a beautiful rescue, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption of which is in Christ Jesus. That word justified means that God considers us not guilty. He declares us, listen, he declares us not guilty through a relationship with Jesus. Imagine for a moment that you stand before God and your time comes. And when you stand before him, you're going to be standing in front of the creator of the universe, the, 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 the judge of all the earth. And when you stand before him, there is the possibility, the very real possibility that when you stand there, the judge of all the earth will be able to say, enter, in your sin is not counted against you. I have declared you not guilty. And the only way that happens is through Jesus. And the Bible makes it real clear: Acts 4:12, there is no other name under heaven given to men, not Buddha, not, not some false God that's been dreamed up. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus. He said it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There are not alternate paths. Jesus himself made Christianity very exclusive. It's only through Christ that we're restored to the one who created us, that we're restored to God. Act three, rescue. Rescue is a part of a significant number of people here, your story, but not everyone. Act four, restoration. There'll be a time when Christ returns. And there'll be a time when we can look forward to as Christians where we'll be able to say there is no more death and there's no more sorrow and there's no more separation and there's no more weeping and there's no more pain. When God brings in peace at the return of his son. But restoration is not a part of every story in this room. For some who have not come to Christ and who will never come to Jesus perhaps, there'll be the time when you stand before God as judge and He will, you will be separated from him for all of eternity in a place called hell because of the weight of sin that was never forgiven. Every life tells a story and yet every life is part of a bigger story, including your story and including my story. You know, when we look in scripture, Every part of the Bible, it seems, points to that grand story that God is unfolding, the the story that is being played out for every single one of us from beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It is hitting on that story, and, and it begs the question, so if every life tells a story, where then are you in that story? And if every life tells a story and you've already been rescued, you've placed your faith in Jesus, and yet God hasn't taken you on to heaven yet, right? You've got things here to do. Why has he left you here? What is the purpose for which he has not called you home already? If you know Jesus, why has he left you here? What is the reason for that? And what must there be still in the story to unfold if God, who knows you, has chosen to keep you in this place, in this fallen world? The Gospel writer of Mark was one who, um, who wrote to a very specific audience. Mark uh, got most of his information, much of his information at least, when he wrote the Gospel of Mark. He obtained it, many believe, through testimony given to him by Simon Peter. Of course, Simon Peter walked closer with Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. And so when he sat down to write his gospel, it was Simon Peter, most believe, who gave him a lot of the information. You you can almost picture them maybe sitting around a campfire or sharing over a meal. And as Simon Peter recounts, hey, this is what happened in this particular instance. Here's what happened in that instance. Mark is taking notes, feverishly taking notes. and Many believe that's how Mark obtained the information for the gospel of Mark. Now, we know the Holy Spirit inspired it, and so we know this is God's Word, that we trust in it, and we depend on it. But Mark, when he wrote his gospel, he wrote it to a very specific audience. He didn't write it primarily to a Jewish audience. He wrote his gospel to a Gentile audience. And when he wrote the gospel of Mark, it was specifically to a Roman audience who expected, was expected to be reading it first. And so when he captures the events of Jesus' life, they're in the book of Mark for a very specific reason. And in chapter 2, I think what we find here is that Mark helps us to understand the very essence of Jesus' ministry. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2, and I want you to read just along with me a few verses that really, really, really capture what I believe are the heart of Jesus' ministry as to why he came. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to begin to read in verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. read along with me. If you don't have your Bible, we've got uh, the, the passage on the overhead. You can read with me there. Look at what Mark writes. He says, and he, meaning Jesus, went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. All right, So this was not uncommon for Jesus to go out, and there'd be a large crowd that would gather and would come to hear him preach and to hear him teach. And so it says, as he passed by, he saw Levi. Levi, we understand, is Matthew, who had become a, a disciple of Jesus. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. All right, so Matthew, Levi, was a tax collector before he followed Jesus as a disciple. So he says he saw, Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Jesus said, follow me, and he got up and he followed him. All right, he left all of his tax stuff behind, all of his collector gear, he left all that behind, and he made a life change, and he decided on that spot, I'm going to begin now to follow Jesus Christ as the, in the direction of my life. So Mark goes on, verse 15, it says, And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, in Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Here's the cool thing. Matthew comes to Christ. His life is radically changed, right? He is now one of the 12 disciples, and the only thing he can do, we can see wrapped up here, salvation, okay? It doesn't say, and Matthew prayed and accepted Jesus, but it's understood here in the text that this was a life change. He was now following Jesus as Lord, that the only thing he could do now was to throw just this big old throwdown party, right? He throws this party, and all of his friends come. Well, who are all of his friends? His friends are tax collectors. Now, I don't know if there are any IRS tax collectors here. If so, no offense, but in the first century, right, this meant a lot. Something a lot different, right? The tax collectors were kind of like the bottom of the barrel. Uh, the bottom of the barrel. I mean, nobody liked the tax collectors, and here's why. Often, what they would do is they would gouge. Uh, you know, they're 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 you know, the, the people who were part of their very heritage. I mean they would gouge them, they would charge them more taxes, and, and then once the tax debt was paid, they'd put the remainder in their pockets. And they got rich, filthy rich, by just ripping people off. And so the whole world kind of knew this. Nobody wanted to be associated with a tax collector. And so here's Matthew. Jesus, interestingly, calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And now that he comes to Christ, he throws a big party. And in the house are all these tax collectors, and Mark says, and sinners who are dining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were a ton of them. So Mark picks up verse 16. Look at what happens next in the story. It says, and when the scribes of the Pharisees, these are the religious people, <laughs> kind of like the professional religious people, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he, Jesus, was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, you know, they called him, hey, hey, disciples, come, come over here. They didn't even go to Jesus. They just called the disciples. We, we, we got a bone to pick with you over your leader, They said to his disciples, "'Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners?' And hearing this, Jesus said to them, well, you, you don't want to tell a secret in Jesus' presence because he's always going to hear it. So, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician. I didn't come for all the healthy people. I didn't come for the people who think they are right with God because they're good or because they have some, some level of service that they think puts them above everybody else. No, he says, I didn't come for those who are healthy. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, the ones who think they've got all this figure, out. The ones who think they're going to heaven because they're part of, uh, of a certain Jewish heritage or because they're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or because they're good people. I didn't come ultimately to call the righteous. I called to came the sinners. I called to, call, to, 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 to draw the people out of the gutter and the ones who realize that they are bankrupt spiritually without a relationship with me. Those are the ones that I've come to call. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, that same Jesus, I mean, I don't know if Mark realized it, but man, he captured the heart of Jesus' ministry right there. And this same Jesus would ultimately give his life on the cross. He would ultimately be risen from the dead, and he would ascend back to the Father. And during his time on this earth, there would be a couple of statements that would just sort of boil down everything that a believer should be about. He would give what's called the Great Commandment, and he would give what's called the Great Commission. He would say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And before he ascended back to the Father, Matthew 28, summary of what he said was to go and make disciples. You know, here at our church, we, we've we've sort of captured that in the front of the bulletin, actually, that you got today when you came in. It, it's there, and we feel like, in a sense, that The essence of what God's called us to do as a local expression of the body of Christ is to love Jesus and to serve others and to make disciples, to love Jesus with everything that we are, to love Him authentically, increasingly, and to serve other people by putting them before ourselves, just like Jesus said, to to serve them selflessly and to help them to see the love of Christ by the way we treat them and speak to them and serve them, and then to make disciples. It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen because the church is filled with a bunch of programs. We have to be intentional to to live our life in a way that makes disciples, that helps create other followers of Jesus. Here's the thing. Let's just assume for a moment that that Jesus comes and he does a little uh, kind of an evaluation of us. Let's just imagine that Jesus kind of looks over the life of our church. This isn't everybody, right? Sometimes it seems like we're doing shift work, like group A comes on one Sunday and group B comes on another Sunday. Let's just imagine we're all here together and Jesus does a little evaluation of us as a church. Here's what I was thinking recently. If we can't say that we're loving him and serving others and making disciples, if, if we miss it on those three simple components, how on earth could any church say they're doing what God created them to do? right, if we're not loving Jesus and serving others and making disciples, if we're not doing that, I mean, that's just the, kind of the, the three biggies. If we're not doing that, how on earth could God say, well done, right? You know, you're, you're, you, you made the top list, you know, because of how great of a church you are. You're not loving me more, and you're not serving others, and you're not making disciples, but hey, everything else you're doing far surpasses, well done. I can't imagine God saying that. And not only is that an extension for us as a local church, but That's the goal for God for each of us, right? that one day when I stand before God, I think what he's going to be looking for is that I loved him increasingly with all of my heart, with all of who I am, and that, yeah, I would go through dry periods, and yes, I would stumble along the way, but that my love for him would grow increasingly, and that, that, that when he examines my life, he can say, you know what, Brooks, you didn't do it perfectly, and you had a lot of you know, road to cover, and you, you weren't always compassionate or gentle or kind, but you know what? Over time, you, you served others. And I think that's what God's going to be looking for, and, and that's what I need to strive for, and, and that, that I think he's going to be wanting to be able to say of my life when I stand before him, that you also invested your life in others to the point to where you helped make disciples. Why? Because your life is a story, and it's part of a bigger story, and what my son Jesus desires is that people grow and that people be about his business of introducing others to him. It's what God desires of us. It's what God wants of us. It's like the summary statement of what he desires. And so when we take a step back and ask, well, how do we do that? How do we, how do we love Christ? How do we serve others? How, how do we make disciples? There's a key word I want to give you today that I think really captures the way we do it. And to me, it's the only way we can do it. And it's the word engage. Engage. I was thinking this week of things that engage to use as an example. Three things came to mind. One thing that we engage at times is a clutch. How many of you drive a stick shift? Any of you, right? You drive a stick shift. How many of you bounced along down the road for weeks trying to learn to drive a stick shift? One of the, the first stick shift I ever had that was like my car, was a car that I had when I went off to seminary, and I named it Buck, because I bought it from a buddy of mine for a buck, and so I figured that's a really good name for it, so I bought it for a dollar. It was a Mazda 626, about 131 years old, I think, and the odometer didn't work on it, and no telling how many miles it had, and, uh, and so I drove this car. It was a stick shift, and I love driving that little car, because it was so much fun to drive a stick shift, and um, If you've ever driven a stick shift, then you know you have to engage the clutch. If you don't engage the clutch, then the car is not going to move forward. At least, not in a very comfortable manner. You have to engage the clutch. We all understand what that means. Uh, another way we engage: imagine for a moment that there's a uh, a person who is sitting off to the side. Let's say there's a big party and there are a lot of people and everyone's con- uh, having conversation. And on the fringe there is a person who's just on the shy side, and nobody's talking to them. And, and you look at that person, and you think, "Man, that's just that, that, that's terrible. They're not able to enjoy any conversation or any relationship here." I think I'm going to what engage them in conversation. You have to take. That step to engage them in conversation. And then imagine on a third level that there's an, an army that has been assembled, and along with the army, there's also an enemy. And that enemy is making threats, and that enemy is making advances. And that army does what? That army will ultimately choose to engage the enemy. They will engage the enemy. It has to happen. Here's what I've learned when I think about engagement engagement trumps presence. Engagement is always more important than presence. We could put that on the overhead. Engagement trumps presence. It is not enough just to be present. Listen, the fact that your stick shift car has a clutch, that the clutch is present, doesn't mean that car is going to go forward. You have to engage the clutch in order for it to advance. The fact that you have an army in place in the face of an enemy doesn't mean you're going to have victory. That army has to engage that enemy in order to be able to experience victory. The fact that there is a shy person sitting on the fringe and there are a lot of other people present, maybe even you yourself, doesn't change anything. You have to engage that person in conversation in order to build a relationship. Presence is not enough. You have to engage. And here's what Jesus did in his ministry. Whenever he was operating in the day-to-day routine of his three and a half year ministry, he understood that his presence was not enough enough. We would think, oh my goodness, what in the world? This is God who has come down from heaven? I mean, are you kidding me? This is God with skin on, living in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, traveling all around Galilee and Judea? I mean, isn't that enough that he's present here with us? Jesus would say, no, that's not enough. And in John 8, when he sees a woman caught in adultery who's been brought before him, he knows his presence is not enough to change her life. He has to engage her at great risk. And when he does, that woman caught in adultery right there in the presence of witnesses is ultimately set free from her sin, set free from her past, set free to pursue a future with him at the very center. And it didn't happen without engaging her first. Jesus understood the role of engagement, and it's always more in presence that, uh, important than mere presence. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus is hanging out. It's been a long day. He's tired. I mean, come on. He's 100% human as well as 100% God. The human part of him is tired, right? And this woman comes along, John chapter 4. She's from Samaria, strike one. First century, she's a woman. He's a Jewish man. Strike two, first century Jewish circles. And he's leaning against this well, and this woman comes, and she has a bit of a past. Well, Jesus is in her presence. Everything's fixed, right? No, because presence is not enough. You have to engage. Jesus engaged her in conversation. And when the conversation was said and done by the end of John chapter 4, she becomes one of the earliest missionaries because she's been set free from her past. She's been set free to pursue... And now a brand new relationship with God through Jesus, the Messiah. And she goes and tells her whole entire village, you got to come meet the man who's changed everything for me. Engagement trumps presence. Presence is never enough. You know, in our community, we have lots of communities and neighborhoods. Lots of streets. Lots of places with lots of people for example one such neighborhood would be river oaks river oaks one of our local communities here Catboat place castaway river oaks drive you got the front edge you got the back part all throughout that community called river oaks three minutes from where i stand right here are dozens if not hundreds of people who live in darkness without a relationship with the god who created them And in that same community are believers, some of which perhaps right here from this church, who are present in that community. But presence does not change one thing. These folks have to be engaged. Beyond just River Oaks, there are other communities in our in our islands. One such, Wilmington Park, one of the oldest. Communities here on the island. You've got Wellington, you've got Manchester and Clarendon and Wingate and dozens and dozens and dozens of other streets. One of the largest communities that we have in the island, filled with people who have no acknowledgement or even knowledge that there's a God who created them who longs to have a relationship with them that can fix the brokenness that they face. Some of whom have attained great success in the business world, and yet on the inside, they're as empty as you could ever imagine. And presence is not enough. These people need to be engaged. You move away from Wilmington Park. There are others. Old Town, one of the newer communities here in our Islands community. You've got the front part, and the back part, and the side part, and the other side part, and you, everywhere you go, there's other parts to Old Town. It seems, and uh, and they love Halloween in Old Town, right? Some of you were there. I think they're trying to compete with us, but we won't go there, right? Old Town is a great area. Lots of people who live there, dozens and dozens if not hundreds, however, who have no understanding of what it truly means to be in a vibrant, life-changing, joy-filled relationship with the God who made them. It's just not not just those three communities, there are others. There's Palmetto Cove. You ever try to take a shortcut through Palmetto Cove? It doesn't work, right? Can't take a shortcut through Palmetto Cove. Somebody put a big old lake there, right? You can't just cut straight through. I'm trying to do that. You're going to be going around this way or around that way. Beautiful homes and lots of neighborhoods and lots of streets filled with people for whom presence is not enough. There has to be some level of engagement for them to be able to understand the beautiful story that they are in of a God who created them and who died for them to ultimately rescue them. It's not just Palmetto Cove either. There's Omler Point. You got Omler Point north and you got Omler Point South. And who knows, maybe there'll be an east and a west one day that'll come along and a lot of nice neighborhoods and streets up in there filled with people who don't have an acknowledgement or a knowledge of of the presence of Jesus who longs to know them. Beyond Omler Point, Woodridge Estates. We we lived in Woodridge Woodridge Estates for for a little while. And one, thing, one of the things I learned about Woodridge Estates is that uh, we got a half our church lives in Woodridge Estates, I think it seems. You couldn't ride your bike or go for a walk without just waving at everybody. It seemed that it's a part of our church. You know, we have a strong presence from our church in Woodridge Estates. There, uh, it's a sizable neighborhood, but there are also a lot of people there who, uh, who are far, far from God. Not with just Woodridge Estates, but you continue to the settlement. The settlement wasn't enough, so you got settlement east. You had other parts there. One of the neatest little neighborhoods, right, is the settlement. I think it's hard to get lost in the settlement because everything's like east, west, north, and south. There's not a lot of curves up in there. It seems and everything kind of like the coolest street names probably on the whole island. I think are in the in, in the settlement. Just kind of some really neat street names and uh, just a great neighborhood. A lot of kids that live up in there, but you know what? A lot of people who could care less that this church is here, who don't even know how much they're missing because they don't know Christ. Beyond the settlement, you move off our island and you start to make your way towards Thunderbolt and on into Savannah and you find a little community called Seagate. One of the things that I think about when I drive into Seagate is that one house on the right that has about one billion Christmas lights at Christmas time. right? What a big neighborhood back up in there. A lot of those, a lot of those folks separated from the God who made them. Oh, but we've got people who live there. Presence is not enough. you got to have engagement. It's more than just the communities. This just scratches the surface. We've got hundreds of streets here in this island's community, 24,000 people who live in 31410. Let's move into some of the condos and apartments. You got West Wind Landing. You got the Oaks. You move to the campuses. You've got Coastal Middle School, Colonial Grand there. You got Coastal Middle School, other elementary schools, and, and uh, high school, and course that middle school you got the savannah country club who's going to reach the folks there i mean who's going to engage them as they go about their daily routine there at that particular country club doing their daily routine what about folks at the y i mean just an enormously busy place you go there early early in the morning i didn't even know 4 a.m came twice a day right but there are folks that go there to work out four o'clock in the morning this is a busy place all the time they've got teams with coaches and parents and who's going to reach the people that live in that little city right it's not enough just to be present that there are believers there. Somebody's got to reach those people ultimately, and there has to be engagement in order for that to happen. What about, uh, what about Walmart, right? A place where you go all the time. Oh, God doesn't care about Walmart, right? Uh, God doesn't care about the people that are there, the ones who work there and the ones who navigate through there. God maybe doesn't really care about them as much. Yes, it's a mission field. It's a mission field. Ace Hardware. Papa's restaurant. I think that one's up here, right? Papa's. Somebody told me after the service, they said, "Hey, today's my birthday. Guess where we're going to go eat now?" After the first service was done, they were in the first service. We're going to go to Papa's, right? So they owe me dessert, I guess, because I struck, you know, struck that bell. Places where conversations can be had about about Christ. Not weird conversations, just normal conversations. Places like Publix. Who would ever thought a place like that as a mission field? You know, I feel called specifically, I think, to hear. If we're looking for missionaries, <laughs> woo! Right here, baby. You know, there's my field. <laughs> you know, all these places around here, twenty-four thousand strong. People who are far from God, some who are learning about God, others who walk with God deeply. Uh, God wants us to engage them. Let me, let me tell you what's not going to reach those people. And I've only scratched the surface. Maybe your community is not there. This is what's not going to reach those people guaranteed. What is that? It's the church. It's not the church. It's a building. This building is not present in Old Town. This presence is not This building is not present at Ace Hardware. This building is not present in Wilmington Park. This building is going nowhere. This was never the design for God to reach the world. When Jesus engaged his culture to fulfill the mission of the Father, he didn't stick his head out of the house in which he may have been residing at the time and say, I'm here, come see me. That was not the strategy he engaged And when the early church began to grow, they didn't go to the local synagogue in Philippi or Ephesus or wherever they may have gone and hang a sign outside and a banner that said, y'all come. They engaged the culture in which they lived and they changed the very climate. Even in the Roman Empire, the, the, the very leaders of the Roman Empire understood these Christians are different because they care for those that aren't their own. And they take them in, and they bandage their wounds, and they provide for them at their own expense. And it was because they understood a building did not change anything. It is the body of Christ, the church, you, me, us, who see the big picture and find our place in the story and go into the lives of others who are also part of the story to ultimately bring the story of the rescue that awaits That's what God has called you to and you and you and you and me for the rest of our lives. To find our place in the story and to spread the message of the gospel and to show people what Jesus looks like when Jesus is put on display. 750 years before Jesus was ever even born, there was a man of the Old Testament named Isaiah who captures in pictures for us exactly what our response should be to everything I've said to this point in this message. Isaiah, a prophet to Israel, very dark period of Israel's history, finds himself in what we could say would be somewhat of a vision of seeing God for who he was in a way that would have, I think, changed his life. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 6. You can read it on the overhead behind me. Isaiah, in his book, chapter 6, verse 1, paints a picture of what he experienced. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Just this magnificent picture of the God who created him. Seraphim angels stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, speaking of the angels here, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, While the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Isaiah is seeing all this unfold. And he captures his own words. He says, and then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because i 'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah is in Act, act two of the story, and he sees not just the Creator in Act one, but he sees his fallenness in act, in, in Act two, and he says in verse six, and then one of the seraphim, one of the angels flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Jesus would do this for us when he would come, for all who place their faith in him. But for Isaiah, this would be God's way of showing, I have forgiven you. I've rescued you of all your sin. This was Isaiah's story. But every story in every life is part of a bigger story. What happens next is crucial. Verse 8. Next verse. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who will go for us. And I said, here am I. Send me. Maybe you caught this sooner than I did. But if not, recognize that God was not speaking directly to Isaiah, issuing a specific call to Isaiah to go. Isaiah overheard the call given to every person who knows God. And when he overheard the call of God that resonates still today, the only response that could legitimately come from his life was, God, here am I. If you're looking for one who knows you and who sees the big story, here am I. Send me. I wonder if there are any here today who have heard that call. And rather than waiting for God to send you to a certain place, will be willing to say, you know what, God, I've overheard the call loud and clear. And whether it's to my neighborhood, whether it's to my city, or to my workplace, or my campus, I want to play a part in the big story you're writing in people's lives. And today, God, I raise my hand. Here am I. Send me. Steve Ferrar, in his book, Finishing Strong, tells a story, kind of imagine for a moment. He tells the story of, a, of an interview to take place. Imagine going back 2,000 years to first century Jerusalem, and you're in a little marketplace there. 2,000 years ago, first century, and you begin to do a little interview of people there. And as you walk up to people in that busy marketplace in first century Jerusalem, you ask them the simple question, who do you think people will remember 2,000 years from now? Uh, It seems everybody you ask, oh, everyone's going to remember Nero. Everyone's going to remember Caesar 2,000 years from now. And you ask the question, well, what about this little band of Christians that sprung up? Well, people remember them, and everyone you interview laughs, and they chuckle, and they say, are you kidding me, man? This group of nobodies, they're not going to remember them two years from now, much less 2,000 years from now, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, and we're naming our children Andrew and Peter and Paul and Martha and Mary, and we're naming our dogs Caesar and Nero. Man, you're a part of a big story, a story far bigger than you. It's a story that begins in the very heart and mind of God. It's not over yet. And He has created you, and He has rescued you, and He has sent you into your very community, your city, not the world, your world, to show people what He looks like and to tell people that there's a rescue still available for them. And rather than waiting for God to make it clear in a burning bush, maybe... We can just overhear his heart like Isaiah. And starting today, say, here, my Lord, send me. Let's pray. If you've never given your life to Jesus, this stage in your life, there's no better decision that you'll ever make than right now today to tell him, Jesus, I've sinned and I need forgiveness. And I ask you to forgive me and to take over my life. And help me to follow you every day. To not just know you, but to fulfill your mission for this world. That others might know you as well. And God, regardless of whether that decision was made just now by some who you've drawn to yourself. Or whether it was made decades ago. Lord, help us to see your part in our story can't be separated. Lord, I pray we never get over the gratitude. I love it when Mike Render connects scenes and he cries every song because he's never gotten over the fact that you have included him in your story. And Lord, may that be the, way, the case for all of us. But God, may we also not forget that there are other stories being written and lived every day. And Lord, you want to use us to introduce you into the stories of those around us, some that live on our street and work in our places of business, go to our campuses and schools and hang out where we hang out. And God, it's crucial that we understand that our presence is not enough. Just like Paul and just like Jesus, we have to engage. Not being someone we're not, but just engage to put you on display. And so, Lord, all over this room, may we answer that call today. Bless now our decisions, and may you get glory through them. In Jesus' name, amen.